You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. We're going to take care of what technology you're going to use. And so what we can promise you is that it's going to be sustainable. We can promise you decrease in carbonization and we can do it at a cost competitive price. We truly believe that uh, electric battery powered vehicles is the best technology today, both from a pricing point of view, but also because it's approved technology in many ways. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. Decarbonizing the economy is going to involve all sectors. Some of these will be relatively easy, and we have the technologies. But in others, we're still early in developing technologies that can be scalable and cost competitive. Today, we're launching a series of episodes that focus on these hard-to-abate sectors. In this episode, I'm talking with Linnea Korniad Falk, founder, deputy CEO, and board member of Enride, a Swedish technology and transport company specializing in electric and autonomous trucking solutions. I'll ask Linnea about Enride's business model and how the company is disrupting the trucking industry through its use of AI, electrification, and automation. Here's my interview with Linnea Korniad Falk from Enride. Linnea, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we're really excited to talk to you as part of our Difficult to Abate Sectors episode arc. And today we're going to talk about trucking and electrification in the trucking industry. Can we just start by asking you to introduce yourself? First of all, I'm uh, I'm Swede, uh, born and raised in Stockholm. I have a background in computer science. I worked for, as a technology developer for a few years. And I think I'm very much an entrepreneur at heart. I um, helped to found uh, three companies in total, including Enride. When we started Enride in 2016, there was no real player in the market to actually challenge the way that we were doing transportation. Yeah, that's what we set up to do. And we're seven years in and it's a, it's an exciting journey. Great. And now I know many of my entrepreneur friends look to see where should they enter a market and they're looking for a space that they think a pain point exists or will exist and they have some comparative advantage to try and solve that. As a computer science person, as a founder of other IT-based platform companies, what was the opportunity that you saw? What was the problem that you were thinking you and your colleagues could solve with the startup? Initially, what we saw when we started out was that there was new technologies that were being rolled out and being more and more available. We believe that the future will look different in how you do transportation. It will be carried on an electric platform and it will be autonomous. But since the beginning, our ambition has always been to be the operating system for how to make this new ecosystem work. So let's take these one at a time so that I can understand what each of these pieces are. So on the electrification side, you'd mentioned there's lots of concerns in trucking that the distance and weight and battery density meant that not only is our batteries heavy, but they would take up too much cargo space. 
yeah. in the truck to make it worthwhile and, and maybe range concerns as well. How are you seeing that world differently compared to those who are skeptical about this? I think there's a good reason to be skeptical if you're thinking that you sh should replace it one-to-one -one with a diesel truck today. And that's also where we see the uh, criticisms coming from. So if you start to make try to make a business case where you're replacing a diesel truck to an electric truck in the current ecosystem, it just doesn't make business sense. It's so much more expensive to buy an electric truck today, even though we are seeing the prices uh, decreasing. Uh, but it it doesn't necessarily make sense. And, and here's where we are taking a bit of a different approach because we believe that you need to look at it from a system level. You need to work with a fleet of electric vehicles to work with utilization of filling rate. And so just to give you an idea of how it's working today, and, and I want to highlight that we're not building electric trucks, we're buying electric trucks and we're putting them to operations. To give you just a number, the average filling rate of a truck today is less than 20%, meaning that there's so much waste if you look at it from, it from a system perspective. And one of the biggest reasons for that is because uh, the OEMs today, they sell a truck to an own and operator. So basically someone that owns a truck and they operates it. And their business model is based on selling as many trucks as possible with an in interest rate. And we're coming from the other perspective. So we're looking at the demand. We're, we're talking together with the customers and the shippers from our end. And we're looking into how are their volumes being moved today? And how can we work with that to make sure that we have a certain filling rate and also utilization of the vehicles? And it turns out that if you're really good at that, electric vehicles in that setup is, is cost competitive to diesel today and can also potentially, as the hardware cost goes down, be cheaper than diesel. And so that's how we are thinking about this is a bit different way. And in that sense, you might argue that the biggest change this industry is going through is maybe not the electrification itself, it's the change of the business model. Interesting. And so the change of incentives, which lead to potentially higher utilization of the trucks. Yeah, both utilization and the filling rate. Uh, and utilization is also around 20%. So there's a huge waste if you look at it from a system point of view. So let's talk about the autonomy piece, where you're taking people out and you're replacing it with technology. And a common example would be robotics in factories replacing laborers. And the rationale is often that, well, we can invest a bit more upfront, but then the marginal cost of operation is much lower. Machines don't have to take breaks. They can work 24-7. And so there's a rationale often there. Is that the same argument that's being made here in the trucking industry? Or is there something else? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. In the beginning, I thought how you apply autonomy to trucks would be similar of how you're thinking about it for cars. But the great thing is when you're working with transportation is that you want it to be repetitive, you want it to be reliable, and you want it to be very systematical. And so I think the example with how you're using robotics within big factories or in warehouses is a great example. And that's also where we draw our inspiration from the AGV systems that you have currently in, in the factories, because it's, it, it uh, follows the same methods that you want it to be going just a certain in a certain way. And that's also how we're working with um, the customers that we have today, and some of them in, in the US where we are applying this technology. So we're looking for a limited 
route, so to say, where we can make sure this is a route where we have a good understanding of the complexity that this technology is being applied to. And so in that sense, it is more similar to a rail a system or an AGV system. So it's not like when you're applying autonomy to cars where you want it to be able to work everywhere. You want to be able to have your freedom. You want to be able to drive you know, on a road trip and you want to be able to go to the store. And the complexity of how to apply autonomy becomes so much greater than when you're doing autonomous uh, with freight transportation because you just want it to go from A to B. You don't want it to take a detour going to C. You just want to go back and forth. So I, I get your point about rail, for example. Many of us have been to airports where you're on a light rail system going from one terminal to another, which is autonomous and electric. And there the issue is, well, there's nothing else on the tracks. There's no people crossing. There's no bicycles to worry about. It's a very clean environment in a sense. And so it's a simpler automation process. And I can imagine highways being similar. It's just one use case of passenger vehicles, along with lots of other use cases of back roads and night driving and trying to avoid people who are swerving in front of you. Are the trucks that you're designing, are they only meant for highways or do they also have to get off the highway and go on local roads in order to get to, for example, warehouses? We, uh, we have created a, a methodology that we call AT1 to 5. And where you would say that AT1 is the more simplified uh, environment or application, if you will. So that would be, for example, in an industrial area where you go very low speed, like almost like walking speed, but you go between A and B. And I mean, that's actually real use cases today where mm -hmm. you have a truck driver driving back and forth 50 times you know, a day because that still needs to happen, but it doesn't necessarily need to happen in speed. It just needs to, to go there. And so yeah. that is a great use case for autonomy. And then if you would uh, increase the uh, complexity of the environment, of course, you need other technologies and you need another skill set for the vehicles. Right. Your company is not the one building the trucks that you're helping to design. You're working with technology partners who themselves are building them for you. Is that also true on the autonomy piece? Are you designing the autonomy software or are you working with partners who are, are developing that? It's a combination and it's the same with the electric trucks because we don't buy electric trucks just off the shelf. So it still needs to be according to our technical specification. So something that's very important for us, for example, is to have a vertical integration towards the, the electric trucks. And then when it comes to the autonomy, it follows the same approach. We are working with different technology partners. I see. And so with your software background, uh, just coming full circle to our earlier conversation, so certainly you know, the whole idea of autonomy is a software-based phenomenon. But also you mentioned earlier sort of a route optimization in order to increase the utilization of these trucks to increase their fill rates. That sounds like a different set of software skills. Can you talk about that area of digital and AI that your company is using? Yes, I think to, to lay the foundation, Electrification is a fundamentally different technology than what we used before. And it's also operating in a very different way than a diesel truck. And so things that you need to take into account if you want to be able to operate a fleet of electric vehicles is one is the health of the batteries, which has multiple variables for how you use the batteries, right? And so the lifeline of a battery can vary from, let's say, nine years to 12 years. And of course, that has a huge impact on the pricing. 
And so what you want to ensure when you operate battery vehicles is to make sure that they have as long life length as possible. For us to be able to do that, we of course need to know how we run these electric trucks, but we also need to understand other factors that you don't necessarily need to care about when you're driving diesel. And one of those might be topography, for example. Are you going uphill, downhill? What's the weather like? Is it very hot outside? Then you need more energy, right? And are you carrying frozen goods? It becomes it becomes very fast, very complex. And so to running electric vehicles in fleet is enormously more complicated than driving diesel. As a diesel technology is actually a great technology for some use cases, but at the same time, by applying an operating system using AI, you're actually able to do this in a way that wasn't possible to do before. And to just to give you an example, a lot of our clients has been using pen and paper before, uh, or even fax, to uh, to be able to plan their routing and to plan their logistic setups. That is not possible if you need to look into all of these variables. It becomes very complex very fast. Again, coming back to electric can actually be cost competitive, but it has to be done through a platform. And I think that's when why we hear when people are talking about electric vehicles and saying that there's no real business case for it yet is because you're applying an electric truck into the current ecosystem when you cannot really think about it in that sense, because it is a fundamental different technology. And so you need to, if you want to reap the benefits of that technology, you have to have an operating system. One is necessary to make the other really cost competitive, it sounds like. So let's talk about the EV technology that you're using. What's the, the typical questions one would imagine when you're thinking about buying an EV car would be, what's its range? What's the capacity? Does it shrink the capacity of the of the vehicle in terms of storage? And what's the charging time, presuming you're going and charging up and not swapping batteries? How does the EVs trucks that you're using sort of stack up along those dimensions? When we start to work with a big client, and we work with a lot of really big shippers globally, we start by looking into their volumes. So we take like a data dump of how their volumes are being moved today. And from that, we run simulations for how it would be possible to take that into electrification transformation plan. We do that by looking into both what's available from a charging infrastructure perspective, but also if it's um, where the energy is coming from, which is of course also very important. But maybe the most important thing is we look into how would this make business sense? Because what we don't want to end up is, is for our clients to pay a very expensive premium for going electric. We still want it to be competitive to what they do today. And so after we have done that first one, we, we um, usually agree upon a commitment that we, for example, we want to electrify uh, 30% over the next five years. And then we start looking into different projects where it would be suitable to do that. And the reason why I'm bringing this up uh, after your question is because in many ways, it doesn't really matter if you're going to supercharge it or the range, because that becomes secondary to, to towards the demand from the customer. So if the customer has a need that they need to uh, ship um, X amount of good from A to B, you look at that specific range and you look into, do we need to stop and charge to get to that point? And so all of this is already calculated into the pricing point 
of how you are assessing these sort of projects. And there's something else we do. We build out infrastructure, charging infrastructure, which has the same mythology where we look into where is it needed? Could it be at the customer site, for example? So one great business case for a lot of shippers is that can we charge while we load and unload the truck? So that, of course, saves a lot of time standing still. And you can, so everything breaks down to each and every customer, depending on what their need is, how much volume they're shipping, and how what the infrastructure is already like in that site. And so, for example, range is something that we discuss a lot um, because that's also a, a very common questions uh, that you that you said before. Um, sometimes there's a bit of a range anxiety in the space because we are still trying to compare it to a diesel truck. And we're trying to compare it to a model where you have an own and operator that wants to be able to go for and take these businesses where they you know, are gonna drive cross countries. But most of the market actually doesn't look like that. I would say, I think it's around 80% of the market is actually highly repetitive, mid to short uh, range uh, transportation. So it's going from factory to stores or from the warehouses into the cities. Since you have so much predictability when you do that, range becomes secondary. Of course, you're going to have to be able to deliver what you have committed, but the range is not necessarily what makes a decision if you're going to go electric. It becomes about the price, price for the volumes being moved. There's a lot of parallels, but also some key differences between trucking and electric vehicles on the passenger side. Like one of the commonalities is trying to figure out how to put the charging infrastructure in a place when the vehicle is stopped anyway. And so you mentioned sort of the client site when you're loading or unloading or the warehouse or the factory, the passenger vehicle equivalent is putting the charging station at home or at the workplace when the vehicle's anyway sort of stopped. But then there's some really key differences. I think when we think about EV on the passenger side, you think about really minimizing charge time and extending range because our goal usually is to get from point A to point B as quickly as we can. But in your description of the freight industry, quickly might be one thing you care about, but precision actually is something more important, like making sure you're there to load the truck at the time you committed to and making sure you're at the other end to unload the truck at the time you committed to. And maybe if that takes an extra hour or not, depending on the traffic or depending on the, the routing, that may be less critical. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yes, I think that's very spot on. And I mean, one of the nightmare scenarios for a lot of shippers would, of course, be to have 100 electric trucks, 100 drivers, and they're all going to charge at the same time. And so, and it takes two hours to charge. And how do you coordinate that in a way so you don't end up there standing there in the line for six hours to be able to get to that charge, charging point? And all of this needs to be coordinated and, and orchestrated somewhere. And that's something that we do with help from our platform. So the business model that you're describing is you'll own the trucks and operate the trucks and the shippers will pay you. Is that the model that I'm hearing? Yeah, it's, it varies a bit from different clients, but mm -hmm. uh, our business model is a freight uh, as a service 
uh, agreement. So it's a contract that spans five years, uh, typically. And then we take the responsibility from the customer to move their goods in a sustainable way from A to B. And of course, with the requirements on the SLAs. But that that's basically it from from their point of view is uh, to make sure that it's um, it's as reliable. That sounds to me a bit like uh, how freight works in the rail industry, where the large companies that sort of take responsibility from end to end, and and of course sometimes in shipping as well. Sometimes there's the shipper itself is the owner of the vehicle, uh, the the ships and the containers. Sometimes there's other freight forwarders who work through other people's assets. But it sounds like you're really thinking about a model that's really not so common in trucking, but common in other modalities. When we look at it from today, I think, you know, it, it is a shift, but it will make even more sense as you move into autonomy. Because when you get into that setup, you need to have that in a more, yeah, in an even more disciplined way. Yeah, and there's been some some talk about that even with passenger vehicles. Like right now, Uber and Lyft rely on individuals driving their own vehicles, but in an autonomy space, it's not so clear that Lyft or, or Uber will be borrowing individuals' autonomous vehicles. They might, in the end, operate them and own them themselves in a way that allows them to coordinate them, much in the way that you're talking about with sort of route optimization and, and uptime optimization. That's interesting. So where are you in terms of commercialization? Where can one see these vehicles on the road, first of all? And who are the types of clients that are engaging with you and have uh, whose goods are being shipped by you at this point? Yeah, so we're working with several uh, big, especially in the grocery retail uh, sector, uh, but also we, <laughs> and I don't know how this happened, but we're a very big transporter of beer. <laughs> that seems to be our niche. Uh, so we are working together with Heineken, with Carlsberg, AB InBev, uh, and to, to name some of them. And uh, we're also working with the PepsiCo, uh, working with, uh, but these are mostly uh, the electric uh, uh, vehicles, so not the autonomies. Um, but uh, so we, um, of course, with the platform uh, as well. But then we work for the autonomous. We have a very exciting uh, uh, we have a very exciting project in Selmer uh, where we work together with uh, General Electric Appliances, where we're actually driving on part public road with an autonomous electric vehicle. So we were actually the first in the U.S. to get an approval to drive on public road. Where do you expect us to see autonomous trucks? I'm a true believer that it's perfect for industrial areas, in fenced areas, even you know ports. It's a great um, application for these technologies. So it's it's basically taking what you have inside of the factory, just extending it a bit until outside of the uh, actual factories or, or warehouses. And then in terms of when we will start seeing them on the highway, I think there will be selected highways where you might have a lane where you say that this lane is for autonomous vehicles. That might be one. And that's one of the things that we are investigating, if that could be a path forward. But I think um, there's still some work to be done to figure out exactly how, how that's going to be made in, in, a, in a big scale. We took some students to Denmark and the Netherlands last January, and we're going back this January. I was really surprised to see autonomous trucks operating in the ports of Rotterdam, moving shipping containers within the shipping yard. They were electric and autonomous, just as we're discussing, moving at slow speed, as you mentioned. And in this case, they actually knew when their batteries were getting low and when to go back into the battery charging shed in order to charge themselves up. And it was quite a scene. We were all kind of blown away by that. And so you're talking about bringing those from 
fenced settings like that, as you're describing, which have low variability, just certainly no bikers or pedestrians who are going to get in their way, to stepwise moving into, okay, fenced in highways, slow speed highways, fast speed highways, and then you know maybe seeing them on interstates as well at some point soon. It's a very interesting. So, you know, this is characterized as a difficult to abate sector. And yet it seems like your approach is saying, well, how can we figure this out using this combination of autonomy, electrification, and optimization? And so it sounds to me like that that's your bet. Your bet is that these three pieces of technology as they are cusped to mature is going to be the way to unlock decarbonization in the trucking sector. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And the good thing is that um, electrification autonomous goes very well together because it's the same with you. You are looking for that same kind of repetitiveness and reliability for both autonomous and electrification. So it will be even though we're working a lot now with electric conventional trucks, uh, it will be a very natural step also to take it to autonomous in the next step. Yeah. And when we're talking electric in your technologies, we're talking about batteries, right? We're not talking about fuel cells, for example, which is another bet some companies are taking. Well, you're absolutely right. It's absolutely battery. So how do you compare this technology path that you're pursuing to the others? For example, I know there's experiments going on with trucks carrying compressed hydrogen, using that to fuel a fuel cell, which then generates electricity sort of on site in the truck. So that's another approach. I'm sure there's others out there. When your clients ask you, well, tell us about your approach versus your sort of the competing startups that are out there. What's the differentiation that you feature? How how are you better than those other approaches? I mean, if, if a client would say that, we would say, you know, that's not going to be your problem. We're going to take care of what technology you're going to use. Mm. What we can promise you is that it's going to be sustainable. We can promise you this um, decrease in carbonization, and we can do it at a cost-competitive price. We truly believe that uh, electric battery-powered vehicles is the best technology today, both from a pricing point of view, but also because it's a proved technology in many ways. It, electric and batteries is, you know, it has been done for so many years now, while we have other technologies that are not as mature and also more expensive, uh, frankly. And so I think what we see is that we have this technology that we know works today and we know how to make it cost competitive. Let's go with that. And if that changed in the future, that might be something, you know, that we're going to look into as well. But I think that coming back to that, we are the operators of these systems and we're selling the um, the um, freight as a service towards the clients. So, you know, when we've been in those dialogues, a lot of the customers has just felt, you know, a relief, like, oh, good, I don't have to try all of these different technologies. I can choose to use pick for me what you believe. And I mean, that's the expertise that we have also. And we're a technology company. This is what we uh, spend our time on. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So you're saying like, leave it to us. This is the as a service approach, right? whether it's software as a service or transportation as a service. The, the idea is you're trying to relieve your customer of having to really invest in the whole technology comparison and just leave it to you. For, and I guess it's up to your team to sort of keep an eye on the advances of the different technologies to double check to make sure the assumptions you're making continue to be correct and then pivot if you need to. We met with a customer outside of Madrid this spring and we talked to their logistic manager and he was like, I tried everything. I tried battery electric trucks. I tried hydrogen trucks. I tried rail and I'm getting exhausted. 
Because, you know, everyone is complaining that nothing is working. So we should just continue with what we have. And, you know, we frankly said, you know, I mean, we, we are here to solve that problem for you because, of course, what they get from, from their boards and from their management team is that here is the ESG report. You need to cut emissions. And so they start to look into all of these options of uh, how can we do that in a way. And all of a sudden, they become very, that they should invest in a technology that they have no experience to operate. And so, yeah, that's a, that's exactly where we come in and where we hope to be helpful for, for these uh for these customers. And where are you on pricing? Are customers willing to pay a premium for greener transportation? Or are they saying we would prefer green subject to as long as you charge us the same price? It varies a lot, uh, of course. You have some uh, customers that are very progressive when it comes to, and they're willing to to pay a green premium. But I think the, the bottom line is that it has to be cost competitive and it has to also have a path towards being more competitive than diesel over time. And uh, I think especially in the current environment where we are, where everything is, is a bit stretched, uh, it becomes even more important to be competitive on, on pricing. And are you seeing any of your clients bragging about using you as a provider? Uh, I know there's some companies, especially beer companies, some of them are trying to portray themselves as more natural or more green. Are they putting on their websites or in their marketing materials anything about the relationship with you? I think that we, I mean, we have amazing customers. And so we, we've been getting a lot of those, uh, like, let's do joint partnerships. Let's see what we can do together. I think that a lot of our customers, of course, using uh, working with consumers, like the end consumers that very much care about um, uh, sustainability or um, environmental questions, they very much appreciate um, when we do announcements like that. So yeah, I, that has been historically something that we have done a lot with clients just to kind of showcase this is how much you know CO2 emissions we have saved by uh, transporting these beers with, with Enright. Great. Well, we're going to keep an eye on on your company and on the sector. It's super interesting. So before we close, let me ask you just a final question that I ask all of our guests. We have a lot of listeners who are thinking about how do I get involved in business and climate change in some manner? They might be computer science folks. They might be transportation people. They might be engineers. They might be business folks. What advice do you have for them as they're thinking about entering this space? It's an amazing space to be in. I think one of the things that really stands out is all the amazing people that you get to work with. You get to work with people that has a, um, it's a deeper purpose for them. And uh, we've been able and been, been very fortunate to uh, hire some of the, I would easily argue some of the best people in the world because they want to try to make something good for society. And so it's a great um, sector to be in, in in that sense, and then it's uh, I mean it it needs to happen. We need we need more companies that are challenging um, the structures, and we know that we need to create a more resilient, not necessarily only from an environmental, which of course is a really big part of it, but we also need to make it resilient, and that's something that I think becomes more and more obvious for for all of us that the way that society is is operating is not really working as well as I believe it could be. And so the best time is still ahead of us and there's so much great things to do. I would in a humble way say that it's a very tough uh, environment right now to raise capital. 
uh, it's uh, very hard for a lot of um, companies out there. And we've seen uh, at least here in, in Sweden, but we know in the US as well. Um, but at the same time, it's also a great opportunity to start in this climate because you will have also the access to a lot of great talent. And what I'm really hoping is that we will continue to see a lot of great entrepreneurs and companies being built within the impact space. It has never been more important than now that we actually build for a more sustainable future. Great. Well, Linnea, thank you so much for sharing your story and the story of Enride. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Linnea Corniad Falk, founder, deputy CEO, and board member of Enride. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Lynn Schenk is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.